be scared of him anymore. He was a sociopath, completely in control of everything. He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Are you okay? Someone sitting in that chair. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast with me, your host, Rob Daniel. And as always, I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by my learned co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And we are outside today, aren't we? So where are we? We are at uh, St. Martin's in the Field, just outside the church. Um, five minutes walk from my work. Excellent. Um, so we'll just get the plugs out of the way first. If you want to find me on Twitter, go to at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. If you want to see my writing go to electric-shadows.com if you want to find where the podcast lives you can go to apple Podcasts. you can go to stitcher you can go to google you can go to pocket cast everywhere apart from acast and rob how about you uh yeah if you want to find my work uh, you can find it at www.ofallthefilmsites.com or follow me on twitter at robert m wallace though i am largely at this point i am largely just uh, retweeting the pot yeah. right excellent cool well today we are going to talk about a film. I'm trying to think of some pun. Can you think of a pun to introduce the film? Who said that? Oh, that's very good. <laughs> I'd like to say that I set you up for that, but I really didn't. So what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about The Invisible Man. We are the Blumhouse Lee Wanell directed movie, The Invisible Man, that I think is still credited as being based on the H.G. Wells book, but of course it has almost nothing to do with the book apart from the title. Well, and uh, the fact that the eponymous, uh, well, the titular Invisible Man, is uh, his surname is Griffin. That's right, yes. So he does keep that name. Great. Anyway, um, so this is the... I should have done some research here, but um, I think with the many, many versions of the Invisible Man story told, there was, of course, the James Whale one from 1933, which was the original Universal one. This latest one is also universal. They can hang on to that copyright really well. There was Return of the Invisible Man. There was the Invisible Woman. There was the Chevy Chase one. Memoirs of an Invisible, Invisible man. man. Yes. There was the Invisible Agent, which was like a World War II set one. Um, there was the Hollow Man. That's right. And there was Hollow Man 2 that starred Christian Slater. He provided the voice for that. Uh, so Kevin Bacon was in the original Hollow Man, wasn't he? Yeah. And when I first heard about this film being made, I did. Fi- my initial thought was feels like they've already touched on a lot of that with The Hollow Man. Yeah, but then you kind of think The Hollow Man was 20 years ago, so that's enough time, I suppose, to have another go around with this story. So, Rob, do you want to give us a quick synopsis of what The Invisible Man's about? I'm going to Google it because... Oh, yes, that's what we do now. We Google it. Because we're so... Well, you are millennial. I'm not. Let's see. No, that's that's just massive spoilers. That's just a massive spoiler. Right, fair enough. So basically, the story of The Invisible Man is about a woman called Cecilia, played by Elizabeth Moss, who at the beginning of the film flees her abusive husband, um, who is played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. Who is, of course, in The Haunting of Hill House. Which I haven't seen yet, but yes, um, I did see that on the IMDb. He also played Jonathan Harker in the Sky version of Dracula years and years ago with Jonathan Rhys-Meyer playing Dracula. Anyway, so she flees the house. She's picked up by her sister, Emily, who is played by... And I'm going to look to you again for the... <laughs> she's, she's picked up by Emily, who is played by... File not found. Harriet Dyer. <laughs> who is Aussie, because of course this film was shot in Australia, doubling for San Francisco. Um, I think it was shot in New South Wales. Anyway... So Cecilia then goes to stay with her friend, James, played by Aldous Hodge, and that seems to be it. And she's away from this guy. But then weird things start to happen, and 
Cecilia becomes convinced that Griffin is still in her life and is doing things to basically try and drive her mad. No one else seems to be able to see any of this, huh? So is she right or is she going mad? That is the question that is kind of solved by the title of the film. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> I, that's the thing. I do like I do like the fact that she figures out or she comes to a conclusion of what she thinks going, is going on very quickly. I think because of her ex... Well, her, her ex-husband's profession kind of is a clue to what's going on. Um... Are we gonna? I don't know if we can avoid if we can really talk about it without touching on a lot of this stuff. So, should we just put a general spoiler warning on the pod? I've written a review of this, and it's been spoiler-free, so I think we can talk around it. I think it's one of those things where the film's called The Invisible Man. It is obvious that there is an invisible man in this film who is doing things. Although, imagine a version of the film where there wasn't. Well, <laughs> that in the particular context of this film would not be great. And that's the thing. Let's get on to that because. Neither of us know the other person's opinion of what we thought of The Invisible Man. So, Rob, what did you think of The Invisible Man? thought it was great. Did you? Yeah. And why did you think it was great? I thought it was incredibly lean and efficient with what it was doing. I mean, there's the opening sequence, or which, which I, I don't think it's supposed to say is her escaping, is her from the abusive home. And it immediately just set up its themes really clearly like you know both visually the house that they're living in which is incredibly open and she's very exposed and she's basically having to stage a breakout of the place that she lives and how the idea of be- these ideas are being seen and being not seen the the film makes incredible use of negative space the implication that something might be there in a way that reminded me strangely of the shallows well not strangely that's a film that does the exact same thing here that's one of the things that i liked about the invisible man as well is that you have these scenes where the person is out of focus and the background which is empty is in focus and uh, the implication there is that there is something that you can't see that's coming to get you that was done very well in the shallows as well where you would have the water behind her and you think in any moment that shark's going to just come out of the water yeah and the idea i, mean, I don't think that you can make nothingness scary because i think something has to actually actively happened for it to be scary but you can make it deeply unsettling yeah and i thought that's what this film did pretty well as well was that it really fed into it plugged the audience into the paranoia of the elizabeth moss character when she's saying i can't talk about it now because he's here and they're in an empty room other than like her and her friend or her sister or someone like that i thought that was done well what else did you like it reminded me a bit of um unsane the uh, Steven Soderbergh film. Which I haven't seen. Yeah, which is about essentially a woman experiencing a persecution and not being believed. Uh, Unsane from the director of Upgrade. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, that was, that was, was that, is that Lee Wannell's last film? Um, if it wasn't, then it was one of his most recent films and I think it was his last film. So is there anything else that you liked about it? I think it was incredibly well scripted. I think because everything that was set up in the early scenes, even like, you know, the, you know, the idea that of, the, of security cameras and all of it paid off. There are a couple of... I, I don't know if it's a spoiler. So there, there are a couple of twists, as you might expect from, from an Invisible Man film. But, yeah, the fact that they've taken a premise which, you know, dates back to... Well, what, what year was the first Invisible Man film? It would have been about 19... So the first film was 1933, but the book The Invisible Man was written in 1897 so this is over a hundred years old this idea and as I said admittedly they don't have any scenes where it's like a man like a figure in a trench coat wrapped up in bandages they don't do like the whole hat and sunglasses type deal which I kind of missed that because I watched the original film on Sunday that just holds up really well and that image of him 
in the trench coat and the hat and the bandages and the sunglasses is like I'm sorry but that is just a great look for a villain I think it would be a bit of an odd choice in this one given the fact they found a narrative way to make it so he doesn't have to be naked for him to be then be like I'm going to put stuff on so you can see me and that's the thing is that I have to admit I was not as keen as you on this film I liked it but I didn't think it was great and I thought that it had it was one of those films where I thought that the subtext of the film was very interesting it just didn't then make the film very fun or interesting to watch. I thought it was overlong at two hours. I thought that the build-up could have been cut back a little bit. I didn't think there was enough characters in it. It was one of those where it was a proper Blumhouse production in terms of it was largely set indoors and there were a few characters. And I thought, well, you need more characters for an Invisible Man film. And it kind of suffered from that Hollow Man syndrome, which kind of like yeah, locks him into one space. I thought that worked in this context because it does sort of explore I think I just, just touched on, touch upon um, the Elizabeth Moss character's psychological state the fact that she basically experiences agoraphobia and I think they need to keep this sort of story contained because it's the idea about her being isolated whether it's her isolating herself or him isolating her and the idea that nobody's going to believe it because I think after a certain point it's going it, to it'd be very difficult for him to operate in like a crowded space in like a true but then i thought that the thing there was like the subtext of this is very good it's called the invisible man and it's all about the invisible power that men have traditionally held over women and i really like the idea that and yeah this is early on in the film that the cecilia character has been going through this awful abusive relationship with her partner and her friends and family don't seem to be that aware of it it's been hidden lots of his power is hidden in the film because he's superficially very charming obviously as abusers tend to be and yeah the idea that it's only once she gets away that her her family really understand kind of the hold that he had on her but even after that there are certain things that he does that show that he still has an invisible grip on her even when he's not around her and I thought well this is really interesting and it's also one of those things where in this time of um yeah, the invisible person, this has to be called the invisible man because it's all about a man's invisible control over this woman. So it actually has something to say about the current state of affairs, society, Hollywood over the past few years and all that kind of stuff. Well, over the past few years, things that have come to light over the past few years. All of that I thought was really interesting. What I didn't think it did, though, was make the film particularly fun to watch. I actually found it a very, very sombre and a bit of a depressing film. And also I thought... The irresistible premise of this movie, or of this story, is that we all would like to be invisible and go around and just be able to do things without people seeing us. That just taps into quite a primal kind of prurient interest. And if you watch the original James Whale film from the 30s, there is a real glee and anarchy to the character that's also there in the book, I think, as well. But when that character uses that power to beat women, it's like, well, I can't really get on board with that so therefore I'm just watching an, this abused woman for stop two hours stop ruining my escapism well stop ruining why this is yeah, still such an intriguing premise over a hundred years after it was written I just thought maybe if it had been shorter it would have been better but I just thought while this is subtextually very interesting this is an invisible man for the moment for now I think that you've made a very very depressing and somber film yeah I, I'd say I I found it sombre. I didn't necessarily find it depressing because I thought even even if you say with the kind of the relatively limited cast and being set largely sort of in confined spaces, I thought it was inventive enough within that without kind of over. It's quite it's quite restrained for the most part. Quite a restrained film in terms of how it portrays the Invisible Man and you know and and, what, and what's going on. 
there are scenes in it. Well, they do, it does make use of a quite like a, a harsh electronic score in places. But there are whole scenes of it where, with her like kind of thinking there's a presence in the room that are basically completely silent. And that was one thing that I thought was really done as well. And and there are lots of things in the way that this film is constructed that is impressive. And that is one of them. The fact that I actually wrote that down in my notes that there is no score here. It's just everything is empty. You can't really see anything and you can't really hear anything, but you know that something's there. And I think Elizabeth Moss really sells it. I mean, which, which isn't saying much. It's like, oh, Elizabeth Moss gives a really compelling performance. But she does seem to be the go-to person. If you want to see a woman abused by a patriarchal figure, then after The Handmaid Tale, I think that she's just top of the speed dial list, right? Yeah. And, and she's really good at portraying, like, psychologically fraught, pretty difficult to live with, but for reason. Yeah, indeed. And that's the thing is, I thought that she was prickly and she could be difficult to the point where when, I don't want to spoil anything, but the invisible man starts to fuck with certain relationships that she's got, she has, that, yeah, the, uh, the, the people that she, the other, pe- the other people are kind of... Which is prickly enough that you can understand that they would believe that it is her doing some of this stuff because of her trauma. But yeah, for me, it was the fact that I just thought that this was quite a dour movie and overlong at a couple of hours. But one of the really interesting things there is that it does really downplay the invisible effects I think because now in these times where you can put anything on screen there's no magic to having they're not that an invisible yeah, man exactly they're not that impressive I think it was just it was a guy in a green screen suit I think and then they just or they just removed him from it must have been and then all the props that he's holding you're thinking well that's you know, going to be CGI as well and it is one of those things where it's like that's a bit of a shame because I watched well, I, I, you know, as I said I watched the original and you look at that and think my god this is amazing there's a shot when he takes off his bandages in the mirror from the original film from 33 and it's like how are they doing that so you've got the reflection and the, and the way they did it was um, it was shot against black velvet with the guy wearing like a black velvet mask and they would put shots together so I think that the mirror shot was four different shots that was like yeah, combined into one there's a scene where he's only in his pyjamas and he goes to bed and the camera moves with him and it's like how how did you do this at the time? It's so, so clever. But now, of course, you know, things are much easier. I'm not going to say they're completely easy, but you can do this where people just don't have that sense of wonder. That, I think it means that in this film, they kind of go for a lot more. I I'm not saying that they're these little touches that had never been done before, but they kind of focus on the small details. Like, you know, when she goes outside and it's cold and her breath is coming out as frost. And then you see, uh, then you see like a little path behind her, even though there's no one standing there. Yeah. And th- yeah, the little details, that's the thing. I think... I'm glad that I don't think this is officially part this isn't part of the dark universe the kind of abortive attempt to make Universal Monster movies into superstars again no. but I don't know if they are trying to reboot the dark universe still I mean at one point this was meant to have Johnny Depp in it which has I know it's a big and complex and ugly case but has certain resonances to it no matter which way you look at it but the fact that they are able to now do this and say okay we're going to keep the budget we're going to keep everything relatively tight it's going to be a Blumhouse production I don't mind if it does take out some of the magic and some of the wonder because I thought it was compelling enough on its own merits. And you know, I'm I'm happy. I'm honestly, you know, if they can do like a an interesting new take on Frankenstein that's similarly kind of stripped back and efficient. And yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see that. And he said that there's um, it being quite difficult for him to be in a public space. There is actually there, there one is very one very good scene, which... which is in a public space that did make me gasp and then laugh because it's such a shock. But I do think it's one of those things where. It would be easier for this character to be in a public space because he doesn't have the constraints that the past characters had. Again, I don't know if it's a spoiler or not, but again, the fact he doesn't have to be naked, it feels quite... 
yes, I mean, that is like a step up from what we've had before. Actually, one of the really, really interesting things here is that it also solves another scientific impossibility of H.G. Wells's concept that he would be blind because the eye is a receptor for light. light. And if, if it, it passes through, through, then you're not going well, to be they, able they, to they go use- Also, I thought the invisible man needs to have a good voice. And I didn't think that Oliver Jackson Cohen really had enough of a good voice. I didn't, he didn't speak very much. He didn't. And I actually think that was an issue with the film as well. I know it's like, you know, it's about the unseen and unheard control. But again, I thought this is why this film works subtextually in a very interesting way. But dramatically, it's a bit inert, particularly when you look at something like Claude Rains or Kevin Bacon from Hollow Man. It's like, well, these are actors who have a very good voice. They can deliver a very, very good performance. They're giving a certain calibre of performance that, again, as you say, I don't think this film is going towards. No, and I did think that... It's like, you know, yeah, that he in, was the in, weak link. In those films, you know, it might be invisible, but you can see this. You can see the scenery slowly being eaten away. <laughs> well, I think Claude Rains, who was unknown in the US, and the story goes that James Whale watched the completely terrible screen test that Claude Rains had done after he got to Hollywood from England, and he said, that's the guy... And they said, why he's so bad? And he said, but that voice is amazing and I need a voice. This has to be a voice that people will be drawn to. And when you listen to him talking about um, an invisible man can rule the world, <laughs> it's like, yes, that's great. I, I can just listen to you talking that way for 71 minutes, which is great. So, so basically what you're saying is you want a radio play of the invisible man. I want an invisible man who's actually got a bit of charisma to him because also it's one of those things where it's like, well, he should have been attractive at some point, right? It was one of those where I thought, I don't know, other than this big house that he's in and that he can wow you with all of his wealth, but you seem to be much more of an interesting character, Cecilia, as played by Elizabeth Moss. So I don't know quite why you're with this guy, but I suppose that's, again, like, you know, subtextually, you don't know why these women will stay with these sort of men, but they do. I think I found him maybe slightly more engaging than you. No, that might be partly my coasting on the memory of um, Haunting of Hill House, in which he's excellent. Right, okay. I don't think it's a spoiler to say he's not in it very much. No, not at all in any way, I don't think. I'm trying to think of the other things in there that I either had an issue with or I liked. It was one of those that I did feel as if it was a two-hour film. It did move at, I thought, a certain pace that wasn't always great. But there were some scenes in there that I thought, well, now this is actually very, very well done. I also really liked her relationship. Uh, I really liked to see his relationship with Sydney, her, her, her niece... Uh, was it? Um, is it was she, was she a, I couldn't quite make out what, what the relationship, relationship was. was. Was it like they were like? Because I thought they were just friends. This is um, oh, okay. So, so the James character, yeah, because I and initially, his I initially thought that like he was married to her sister, and that maybe it was like have they div- just divorced and they're amicable, or are they just friends? So maybe are they just friends? I exactly thought that. I thought that James was married to Emily, the sister character. And that they got divorced. I thought exactly the same as you. And then as the film went on, it's like, well, I'm, I'm seeing no evidence that because Emily... there's no real interaction between them. That's right, yeah, that Sydney is Emily's daughter. So therefore, I'm just assuming that this is Cecilia's friend. And uh, for Look, a two-hour movie, for us to come out of that not quite knowing the character dynamics between yeah, them is an issue, I think. But there, there is a really nice scene where Cecilia's coming come into a bit of money and where she's sort of... There, there, it's just a really nice scene of just human normalcy and happiness I thought it was really effective because it's kind of heartbreaking in context because like oh here's the, mo- here's the little bit where it's going to be good and things are going to be happy and things are going to be okay and obviously us kind of you know predicting the shape of this film this is not going to last yes indeed I thought that was good as well there's also um, I can't think of the character's name or the actor's name 
But the Griffin character's brother, I thought, was good. Yeah, he has a couple of good scenes as well, I thought. The character's name is Tom, and he's played by Michael Dorman. And he, he, he plays a lawyer, and he does have this kind of slimy quality to him, and he, he's really unlikable, but then it, the film suggests extra dimensions you might not be initially expecting. Yeah, and I thought that was a very good scene when they did that. I thought, okay, so you are doing things with these characters that I'm not expecting. I just think that there is more gold here. It's been a massive hit, so I think it was predicted to do about 25 million. It did 29 million in its opening weekend. Um, I if, think it's about 50 around the world so far. I don't think it will, just based on economy of scale. But imagine if it made more money than uh, The Mummy, the 2017 The Mummy. But it would be justified, because even though I had issues with this film, it was a much better film than The Mummy. But then again, pretty much anything's much better than The Mummy, the film that we saw at the IMAX. Jesus. Actually, I saw this one at the IMAX, but it was the City World one. Uh, yeah, I, I saw this at the... No, I didn't. I saw this at the Super Screen at the, uh, the O2. Yeah, I, I, although our podcast reacting to The Mummy is still one of my, our fav- my favourite of our episodes. Yes, it is well worth going back and digging out that episode. That was a good episode. It was much more enjoyable than the film anyway. But um, there was something else. I think with this, though, yeah, it has been a hit. I think that Blumhouse is... Um, they're very canny at making things a franchise if it looks like it's got more legs i would say even though i had issues with this film i think that there is more gold here it certainly sets up elements that you could continue the story with they could even give elizabeth moss a superhero franchise <laughs> you get to the the after the credits and all of a sudden it fades back in and russell crows there saying you know have you heard of prodigium <laughs> i'm putting a team together <laughs> no that would be the real horror ending I did actually wait until the very end of the film to see if there would be another scene just to see if they were going to try and set up something but they're not so yeah as far as we're aware right now this is a standalone movie but uh, yeah because the practical justification behind the invisibility it means that it's not a limiting factor it doesn't necessarily need to there doesn't need to be one invisible man doesn't even need to be an invisible man yeah I was thinking that as well and that's one of the things with the stories I think it's always suggested that even if the thing that causes the invisibility gets destroyed there is a way to replicate it i think because the idea of being invisible is just so appealing on a certain level that why would you want to paint yourself into a corner with that premise when you come back for a sequel if your film does well as i said i'm looking forward to seeing more not revisionist contrary oh let's make it dark and bleak and gloomy for no reason but I am looking forward to seeing some adaptations of Frankenstein that maybe look at it from like the perspective of modern technology rather than just being like, oh, here's Daniel Radcliffe's Igor and James McAvoy's Frankenstein. We're doing the whole Victorian thing again. It's like that one. I think after Kenneth Branagh's one, it's like it's time to go, okay, we, we can tap out. In the same way with after Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's like I think we can tap out on doing period retellings of this. <coughs> My coronavirus is playing up a bit. Um, well, that's, the, uh, you heard that obviously they had to halt the filming of the new Mission Impossible. Yes, I did. Yeah, and it's like I'm sorry, but I think that Tom can outrun anything, <laughs> including the coronavirus. So that was done for everyone else's uh, safety, not for Tom's. Um, uh, in the interviews, uh, you know, whenever the, when the film does come out, it's going to be Tom being like, "Yeah, because of the coronavirus, we decided that we really had to go into space." And it's just, yeah. it's just Chris McCoy just sat there, just shaking his head, being like, "Saying, God, he really, really argued this round." There was one other point that I was going to say. Yeah, because you watched an updated version of Frankenstein last year that was done by Larry Fessenden. Larry Fessenden. Yes. I didn't find it entirely satisfying. There wasn't quite the emotional payoff to it I was hoping it was going to be. But that was a film that yeah, did kind of delve into the ethics behind modern technology and actually engaged with some of the big ideas. I mean, I'm amazed that nobody's just done Frankenstein, but it's AI. 
you know, let's say you know you're taking bits and pieces of code from other places and and then and doing that you can really look at like what the idea behind mary shelley's spark of life is the the, the animus that gives this yeah but there's a dangerous road to tread there because then you end up with um ultron or uh transcendence yeah indeed two shit films so um, yeah don't do that so actually looking at these i suppose that you can say that the that the creature from the black lagoon was done in the shape of water sexy, i think they should have sexy creature from the black lagoon <laughs> yeah you just look at those scales they just gleam uh the wolfman would be a good one i suppose oh, they, you could they obviously did the benicia del toro one yeah, but oh, that was yeah. that was a decade ago and was shit. And uh, but as like an updated version, looking at male rage in modern society and, that, and toxic masculinity, sort of. Yeah, there's all there's so many things that you can do with them and make them kind of topical and relevant. So, is there anything else to say about the Invisible Man? Is there any gold that I can't see? Oh. <laughs> no, I think we've. I think we've. Uh, trying to think of a pun. There's there's, there's nothing. The well's got the well is dry. Yeah. I can't see anything. I've got snow blind. I guess this. What, what I guess we don't want to touch on what the next podcast will be. Yeah, indeed. Um, I suppose other things. So we did see the true history of the Kelly Gang. Uh, so we'll just say that's well worth going to see. Also with Russell Crowe in it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and he he was better in that than he was in the Mummy. But the next one could be Onward. Yeah, I'm guessing we'll get one more in before No Time to Die. Yes, particularly because I read something or I saw a headline today that said that calls, and I'm not sure who was making the calls, but there were calls to postpone the premiere of No Time to Die because, of course, it would mean going around the globe and they're saying, actually, is it now the best time to send a press junket around the world for the premiere of a film when everyone could get really ill? Yeah, and the, the title of the film is No Time to Die. And there is that as well. So, um, yeah, this is No Time to Release Your Bond film. This is No Time for Irony, Mr. Bond. <laughs> I think Onward would be a good one, if only because I'm hearing some amazing things about it. Um, so that's out on Friday, so we could even try and do that next week. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely get another one in before No Time to Die, particularly if that's released at Christmas. But as far as we're aware, it's still April. Cool, alright then. Well, um, we will see you soon. Ah. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening, and yes, we will talk to you again very, very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Invisible Man could rule the world. A little of this injected under the skin of the arm every day for a month. An Invisible Man can rule the world. He can hear every secret. He can rob, rape, and kill. <laughs>